Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 252 for the 23rd of September, 2016. I'm Chester Wisniewski here this week with John Shire. Welcome back, John. Hey, Chad, how's it going? Pretty good. Uh, it's, uh, it's unusual for both of us to be in our, our native locations, but that's, of course, also why there hasn't been a chat chat for a couple of weeks. Uh, travel schedule got the best of me, but uh, happy to be back. But sadly, the day uh, has been dominated uh, a little bit by this Yahoo News. 500 million users information breached, uh, allegedly by a state-sponsored actor, according to the uh, Yahoo statement to the press. We don't know a lot of detail, of course, other than what Yahoo's disclosed. There's there's several interesting bits in here to me, which is most users' passwords were using Bcrypt. Why weren't the rest of them? You know, there, there's interesting password storage issues there. And maybe more than that is 500 million users is not a, a normal size for a state-sponsored breach. You know, if we look back to other alleged state-sponsored activities like Google and China in the past, you know, Google was very clear that you know, the Chinese had hacked them trying to get access to specific dissidents' emails, for example. What do you make of this? I came to a very similar conclusion about the number here and the alleged you know, national uh, actor link. And it just seems to me that, as you say, you know, in the past, there hasn't been a number like this associated with these state actors. However, this this could very well be sort of a, a you know a cloak of, of anonymity, right? So we're just going to steal everything. And that way, Yahoo is not going to know exactly which accounts we're deeply interested in. And, and it's just a little a little way of sort of uh, adding some uh, some smoke and mirrors to to the whole breach, right? Who knows? It, it could be it could be that, and then again, it could just be garden variety cyber criminals. Well, yes, yeah. You know, I guess if we look at the OPM breach, I mean that was tens of millions of American government workers, and that was allegedly state sponsored as well. So it's not unprecedented for a giant amount of accounts to be impacted. And you know, one of my thoughts on this was around the age group of people using Yahoo's services. I mean, Yahoo's not exactly hip these days, and you do see generational differences based on free mail usage, right? Like you know the, the very first generation of internet users uh, kind of started out with their AOL accounts and people used to make fun of older people for still having AOL.com email when everybody else had moved on to Yahoo and Hotmail, which of course then everybody moved on to Gmail and this kind of thing. So if you're targeting uh, government officials, if it was state-sponsored and you're looking at you know potentially acquiring access to a lot of senators or congressmen or, or higher-ups within the Department of Defense, etc., you might assume based on their average age that perhaps they prefer Yahoo. That's a definite possibility, and, and you do see that from time to time, don't you? When when certain platforms come out, communications platforms, they do get uh, they, they do tend to sort of attract the the current generation, and as that generation ages, they do tend to hold on to to the platforms of choice. Um, so yeah, that might be the case. You know, we do have some evidence that uh, there have been some higher profile public figures using Yahoo accounts. And uh, if if this is definitely a, a nation state actor that's going after these Yahoo accounts, maybe th those are their targets. Or then again, you know, I, I, I hate to say it, but maybe the whole nation state thing is, is a way of saying, you know what, we got breached and we really don't know what happened. And let's just throw the nation state actor out there when in fact it was just, you know, maybe some some of your run-of-the-mill cyber criminals are lo just looking to make a buck off a, a massive dump. Yeah, I mean, as we've said so many times before on the podcast, I mean, attribution is near impossible in many cases, unless they want to be known. And it, it can be difficult. And obviously, Yahoo's going through this acquisition by Verizon right now as well. So it's it's rather a sensitive time for them. My biggest worry was just that this breach occurred in late 2014. And if you may have been one of those targeted users, the criminals have had more than two years to go at your password, especially if, if your password was not stored using Bcrypt, which again, it's very unclear. They're going, hey, 
case, most users were Bcrypt. Well, what is most? Is most 51%? Is it 90%? Is it 98%? We don't really know what the policies for password storage uh, were and when Yahoo converted from whatever was before Bcrypt to Bcrypt. So the truth is like every breach, change your password immediately, change your security questions immediately. And my advice based on uh, past experience looking at, you know, Yahoo saying birth dates were included, that kind of thing is don't be sharing your birth date online as long as we're using it for identity purposes. Sadly, you have to maybe be a little less than truthful and a disproportionately large percentage of my friends are born on January 1st. And, and I don't think that's uh, by accident considering the security and privacy advocates I have a tendency to hang out with. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you mentioned security questions, and that was another thing that was included in, in the breach was uh, some unencrypted security questions and answers, which really does make uh, some account impersonation quite easy for anybody who's looking to uh, hijack an account. So yeah, it's just really interesting that some of these accounts were, some were protected and some weren't, I guess you could say. And uh, you know, the, we'll wait and see. Yahoo is still coming out with some details throughout the day, and uh, they, they have released a statement. And uh, you know, so far, they've largely hesitated from using, you know, we treat your security uh, importantly, but you know, they, they, they are responding and, and like you say, change your passwords and you know, maybe consider using two-factor two authentication on any site if it's available to you. Yeah, kudos to Yahoo for not using the statement, an abundance of caution. Now moving along though, some great work by the US government. We got a couple stories this week that are interesting to me. The next one was related to what's called identitytheft.gov slash data breach, which is a great website. There's a promotional video available there talking about what users can do when there has been a data breach. Now, fortunately, in the case of Yahoo, credit cards, social security numbers, those types of information were not included. Another reason not to panic, I suppose. But more than that, when those pieces of information are stolen and compromised, which is all too frequently, no matter what country we're in, whether we're Americans or not, our social insurance numbers or government ID numbers, things like this are very attractive to ID, criminal, uh, ID theft criminals. This is a good website, even if you're not American, right? You go to this thing, it gives you some advice on what types of things you need to do based on what types of information may have been stolen and provide some really concrete, calm, collected thoughts on what to do. Yeah, as much as we like to, uh, you know, tease the government about some of the things that they do do that we don't agree with, uh, you know, sometimes they are here to help. And this is a, one of these uh, great examples of the FTC trying to reach out to the public and saying, all right, you may have been caught uh, as part of a data breach. And here's a very easy to follow checklist. And, and if you go to the site, which is at identitytheft.gov slash data breach, it gives you a nice little one minute video that explains some of the resources that are available to you. One of the links that you click on, it says, all right, well, what information was lost or exposed? And there's social security numbers, uh, debit credit card numbers. And if you expand those sections, it gives you a comprehensive checklist of all the things you may want to consider doing uh, in order to protect the information or change the information or notify the you know some of the other organizations involved that you've had a data breach. For those of us, you know, who are not security experts, right, so and are not living this stuff every single day, uh, this is a great resource. And I think it's it's very well done. Yeah, I love how the, the video starts out with first, take a deep breath. I mean, just <laughs> great advice. Yeah, exactly. Um, Don't panic taking some advice precisely. from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Now, as impenetrable as the iPhone has sounded over the years, uh, especially considering the kerfuffle with the FBI back uh, early in 2016, some interesting research has been uh, released about how you might break into them if you needed to, if you had a legitimate uh, reason as a, someone in law enforcement. You wrote this up for Naked Security, and I thought it was a great story. I, I was thinking through... Like, I don't have the skills to do it myself, but when, when that whole Apple FBI thing was going on, I was remembering back to a presentation I'd seen a year or two back 
where a guy had built a robot to guess the pin numbers on iPhones. And the only missing component was, you know, how do we get beyond the 10 guesses before the phone erases itself? Uh, what's the answer? Well, it turns out that it's uh, NAND cloning or NAND or however you want to pronounce it. NAND is the type of flash memory that is being used in a lot of these devices these days. And as was proposed when the whole San Bernardino issue was was being discussed and and argued in both you know in the public sphere and, and in the courts between Apple and the FBI, uh, some security experts suggested let's just clone these chips and that way we can get around those limits of of you know ten guesses. In this case, they only did six, and I'll explain that in a minute. But effectively, uh, what the security experts were saying could possibly be done. One man actually did. He actually took the time to look into this issue, create some proto types actually test them and was able to then subsequently get around the, the lock in this case of the, the the iPhone lock of a four digit passcode by just basically using some knowledge and some elbow grease in this case he only did six guesses because after the fifth guess then the phone starts to do some some pausing right it'll wait for a minute and then five minutes and then an hour those kinds of things so that was the more efficient way for him to do this and basically he would take a chip clone it he would try six guesses reflash the chip try it again and just kept going back and forth in that method and according to him and his method he was able to crack a four-digit passcode in only about 40 hours which is pretty amazing and using only about a hundred dollars worth of equipment that he could get off of ebay or alibaba or any of these marketplaces yeah and i mean the, the i mean the lesson to me from all this was you know whether i can do this or not i don't think people should panic this isn't something like that a criminal's going to steal your phone off you on the train and then clone the memory chips and you know crack your password kind of thing i mean this is truly more of a, a law enforcement style situation as you can probably hear in the background they're they're coming for me now but the, the truth of the matter is, if you care about the data on your phone, a four-digit PIN is just kind of a joke. I mean, yeah, he's able to break a four-digit PIN in 40 hours. Let's take it, you know, to a six-digit PIN. If you're really worried, you could probably break a six-digit PIN in not that long either, because you could just kind of do this cloning in parallel, where you could do a lot more automated guessing if you were, say, the FBI in the San Bernardino case that you mentioned. But to me, it just says use a long, strong password on your phone, just like you do on your computer, and then use that fingerprint sensor to augment it. And, and that's precisely what I do with my device. I mean, I, I, I love the fingerprint sensor because you only get those four or five attempts, and it's pretty hard to duplicate a fingerprint that easily. And we've kind of talked about that in previous podcasts. And the, the real way to get into it as this is demonstrating is or the easier way to get into it is to, to clone these chips and, and keep guessing the pin number and so by using a password instead of a pin number you, now you're starting to make this a pretty dramatically more difficult process well that's right and we, we have mentioned this before the combination of, of pass words pass codes pass phrases and, and fingerprint sensors you know I, I bumped up once I got my my new device that that supported a, a hardware back fingerprint sensor I was able to then bump up my my passphrase to my phone from, I believe it was uh, 10 digits at first to now it's 17, right? And I don't have to enter it very often. I do have to enter it from time to time. There are certain timeouts built in and when I reboot the phone and, and things like that. Uh, but yeah, it, it really is uh, you know, a, a good first line of defense against this kind of brute force attack, right? Just simply introducing letters into that passcode. And after all, you, you wrote uh, the article uh, recently about NIST's new uh, digital authentication guidelines, which, which basically asks for a minimum, which is not a maximum minimum, as you say, but a minimum of, of eight characters for a password or passphrase. So simply introducing letters and, and punctuation into that password dramatically increases the amount of uh, work that needs to be done to brute force a password. Moving along to the payment card industry, uh, one of the things most people are familiar with is that 
that three digit or four digit number on your credit card that you often have to enter in addition to the 16 digits when you're purchasing something online known as the CCV or CVV depending on which country you're in number. It's a verification code if you will. Also called a CVC. We, we like to make things extra confusing by having lots of names for them but that secret number exactly. the key to it is that it's not stored in the mag stripe on the back of the card right so card skimmers uh, as we hear about so often on compromised ATMs and payment terminals won't pick up that number, which makes it very difficult to do online fraud because when you buy something on Amazon, it requires that that extra verification code that's only there in print. So these credit card verification codes or, or CVCs uh, shouldn't ever be stored, right? That's the whole idea. If we don't store them electronically and they can't be stolen electronically through that stripe on the back or from the chip on the front of your card, then that makes it really hard for criminals to do online transactions. And it looks like uh, 324,000 card numbers have surfaced where a payment processor was actually storing those numbers. Numbers. I mean, uh, I mean, you'd hope that people in the payment card industry would know better, wouldn't you? Yeah, they really should know this. I mean, this is part of the, the PCI DSS guidelines as well, that this is one number that should never, ever be stored. The whole purpose of that number is to prevent fraud in card not present situations, as you mentioned, online payments, where uh, the retailer does not actually have a card physically to look at and even, you know, let's say some photo ID to uh, to request. And so that number is, is really the, the one thing that prevents a lot of that fraud from happening. And so, while credit card numbers can be stored, you know, there are some guidelines around how they can be stored, and obviously they have to be encrypted. Uh, CVVs are the one thing that must not ever be stored in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, and, and I mean, everybody's denying that they were involved, but the truth of the matter is, you know, Regpack, one of the companies that was allegedly, uh, uh, potentially one of the companies that was hacked where this data was stolen, kind of acknowledged that, oh, and occasionally this information is decrypted and kept internally for analysis purposes, which, again, you should never be using real information uh, like that in a way where it can be compromised or stolen. I mean, I, I don't really understand what the benefit of analyzing that data would be with CVVs. Like, it's just, it, it doesn't make any sense to to me, it, it, there's really not any, you know, advice to provide uh, end users, I don't think. So uh, I guess we're really talking to the payment processors here. And those of us that are security professionals need to be asking questions that may seem dumb, like, are you storing CVVs when consulting with them? Exactly. So just not even collecting the information in the first place would have been the best step. And that way, even if, as was the case here, when, you know, as you mentioned, this data is periodically analyzed and, and the way that they determined that the breach occurred was the information was then put on a publicly facing server. And that was the source of the data loss in their own words. If the CVV wasn't even captured in the first place, then at least from that standpoint, it might have only been some PII loss, if you will, right? Um, so is is that is that cold comfort for those who have lost their PII? You know, probably not. But I think that as companies, if you are taking due care in, in protecting your customers' data, you only collect as much as is necessary, and you follow the absolute minimum of encrypting all of that data. And you know, don't allow it to get to a, a stage where it, it can be put on a an externally facing server. Now, in this case, the the company has said they they review they're reviewing their processes, their guidelines, and to, to ensure that this doesn't happen again. But again, cold comfort for those who have had their uh, their data breached. 
And lastly, and briefly touch on uh, some, some news from the U.S. Department of Transportation about car hacking. It looks like they're working uh, with industry to kind of come up with some guidelines, especially around the privacy of information. I mean, we've been hearing a lot about a few high-profile incidents with uh, Tesla automobiles in the last few months. And I think a lot of people were quite surprised that Tesla seems to have, you know, video of the accidents and every precise thing about everything that's been done in every car on the road. And, and a lot of Tesla owners didn't seem to be aware of that, although I'm sure it was in a privacy policy they agreed to somewhere. Kind of interesting that the government's trying to take this consultational approach to solving these problems going okay industry here's the way we see things this is you know some best practice some guidelines how we would like to see consumers respected not threatening regulation so much but saying this is the direction you need to go nudge nudge you know come along with us and then we don't need to regulate it and we can all get along and, and protect consumers and 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 allow you still a lot more freedom and implementation and choice so what do you think of that i think it's pretty good I do think it's a step in the right direction. The the government here and, you know, for those libertarian minded folks out there, you know, they're not actually trying to regulate this right now. What they're saying is this is a voluntary process that they want. Basically, they want the manufacturers in the industry to start building in privacy and security into the products that they're going to put out there that are going to end up uh, being these autonomous vehicles. And, uh, you know, we, we often talk about the insecurity of IoT devices and how shipping product is, you know, trumps putting any, the modern of security in the first place into the product. This is the government saying, let's look at the information that you collect and the information consumers need to have, you know, accessible, clear, meaningful data privacy and security notices with choices about collection, use, sharing, retention, and deconstruction of data. So the government's saying, okay, let's look at privacy, make sure that that is addressed and that consumers who are buying these products are duly notified and aware of how their data is being used. And then also the data collection that goes on in terms of all of the activity that that vehicle engages in, use that as well to improve the safety of some of these vehicles. And again, that needs to have some clear disclosure as well uh, with the consumer. So overall, I think the government is heading in the right direction. If nothing else, it opens the conversation, which is really what we need to do, uh, because this is the next wave of you know, new technological devices. Yeah, I've been working on some very similar conversations around the Internet of Things with the U.S. Department of Commerce. In fact, I uh, in a few weeks, I'm heading to Austin, Texas to go to a, a meeting with industry, government, and and concerned citizens like myself uh, to discuss IoT security and how the companies involved in that business can do it better. But at the same type of approach, right? We don't want to have to regulate you, but we see some really serious concerns with the amount of data you're collecting, how you're collecting the data, how you're securing your devices, etc., etc. So let's work together to figure out what best practice is and look what it looks like and how it can be best implemented. And then we can kind of agree that this is the direction, you know, that we should be going. But on that note, uh, we need to conclude this episode of Soft Security Chat Chat 252. As always, for the latest security news, we encourage you to visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. For all of our podcasts, you can get them on our RSS feed from our website. You can get them on iTunes, TuneIn, many different apps, the Google Play Store, pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. And until next time, stay secure.